listening to The Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. Today's guest is a broker right at the top of her profession. She is someone industry leaders turn to for advice and assistance around the most fundamental commodity in our industry, capital. Her contacts are superb, and if you need support, her insight and connections could be the difference between getting what you need and coming up short. Vicky Carter is Guy Carpenter's chairman of Global Capital Solutions International and is also currently a member of the Council of Lloyds. In our discussion, we examine every facet of capital and the industry's financial health, investor appetite for the insurance sector, and the prospects for the emerging class of 2020. It's why I've called this episode a Capital Masterclass. We also look at the work she's doing on Lloyds Restart SME Pandemic Solution and examine diversity and inclusion from the perspective of one of the most senior women in the industry. I highly recommend spending the next 40 minutes listening to Vicky. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access, who have kindly supported this podcast. Rick, first, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. Prime Holdings is a holding company, and we're excited to expand our claims TPA service, Claims Direct Access, which is the exclusive claims manager for Prime Insurance Company and has managed claims for Lloyd's since 1995 when we've been on the Lloyd's line slip as a risk taker. So we plan on coming over to London and uh, hopefully providing our partners more flexibility where we can issue prime paper where necessary. We can support and take risk on the Lloyd's line slip and offer our superior claim service, which is evidenced by Prime's own loss ratio for the past 10 years. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting is a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. So again, we're excited to bring superior claim service to the Lloyd's marketplace and offer the ability to share risk alongside them as we manage the claims. Well, thanks so much, Rick. And I'll make sure there are all the right links in the podcast notes. And let's get on with the podcast. Vicky, thanks so much for giving us your time. We've got a hard market or hardening market. How much of a real capital shortage is there in this market? Well, first of all, Mark, thanks very much for inviting me to chat to you today. It's a a pleasure. Interesting question. Tough one to start with. To be honest, in the wake of COVID-19, there's been lots of questions about insurance companies' solvency position. If you look at analysts, they're focusing on this. Rating agencies have negatively changed their industry outlooks. And insurance companies themselves are having to make public disclosures. But what people aren't really sure about is how the financial market impacts and COVID-19 affect solvency positions in addition to the liability implications. So at the end of 2019, insurers were generally considered well-capitalised However, that was prior to the events that started in 2020 across the globe. So solvency ratios are definitely likely to decrease for many insurance companies as a result of volatile financial markets impacting their assets and the other impacts on the liability side. The key drivers for things like solvency ratio reductions are low interest rates, which obviously we're seeing some of the lowest interest rates we've ever experienced downgrading of bonds, and then you've got credit and credit spread risk because of the potential risk of default. You've got 
huge volatility in the equity markets. The regulators are looking at stress testing for COVID-19 impacts. They're also reviewing ERM very carefully, liquidity, diversification, volatility of earnings. So looking ahead, while the industry was perceived as being well capitalized at the end of 2019, it's the same period of low interest rates and the threat of a global recession could substantially change it. And at the moment, what's your gut feeling? The capital markets have recovered somewhat since they created as the pandemic really took hold at the end of the first quarter. Where do you feel we are in capital? Are we about back where we started again? Yes, I think we probably are. I mean, I think if you look at the factors that have eroded customer trust and the industry's reputation, thinking about customers, investors, some of them resent problems over promising of rate rises when, you know, raising capital in 2017, over-promising on the industry's ability to model risk and then getting hit by unmodeled wildfires and pandemics. And then also the failure to explain the impact of track collateral issues and the consequences for liquidity and returns. So, you know, I think there's some big challenges out there, but at the same time, the industry still provides an extremely attractive proposal to investors. And they like the fact that a lot of it is uncorrelated risk. So on one hand, you've got probably capital leaving, but on the other hand, there's plenty of capital out there looking to come in. So there's plenty of capital available. And you mentioned about investor frustration with some of the performers, some of the players not having performed in the way that they said they would when they raised capital. So is it more a discerning market now that there's capital available for players who everyone knows are good or have had good track records and perhaps less available to those that haven't done so well? I think, yes, I think absolutely. If you look at what the investors are doing, they are carefully scrutinizing the opportunities. There are a number of heavyweights, industry heavyweights, who are out there trying to raise capital right now and starting new operations. But, you know, it's not an easy job to start a new operation today, particularly if you want a rating. And also applying to Lloyds to set up a new syndicate at Lloyds is not a two-minute exercise. So I think the most important thing for a lot of these investors is sitting behind somebody who's got a demonstrable track record, somebody who's got real industry influence and pull, and has proved that the results of their prior engagements have been very successful and highly profitable. So I think that's been one of the focuses. But at the same time, P firms, if they want to get in quickly, and they want to be in for the perceived rate increases that are likely to come at the 1st of January, a quicker way is maybe to come in and acquire a sort of lower performing operation at a reduced price, which could potentially give them quicker access. So I think primarily I'd say, yes, investors are looking much more carefully about who they do back. But there are opportunities to maybe go into underperforming operations, acquire them and then turn them around, which potentially could be quicker. On that, going in and fixing up something that's already there to save you time on getting all the licenses and everything else, is there a worry, though, of what is in that company or the liabilities that it's now incurring? And how much of a factor is COVID-19 in terms of being a factor of uncertainty as a worry to say, I won't buy an incumbent because actually I probably would be better having a clean balance sheet? COVID's impact on the insurance industry will be severe and be seen on balance sheets from all lines of business. There's no question about that navigating large claims exposures and the fall in global equity markets, which has impacted investment returns. So investment income previously has supported income, it's lowered combined ratios, and it's mitigated prior year losses. 
going into an existing operation where you've got a lot of legacy, of course, there are a number of reinsurance structures you can do to remove that legacy and safeguard you and ring fence you. It's similar to what Equitas did at Lloyd's back in the 90s. You know, this crisis is hitting the industry faster and probably more universally than anything ever has before, any economic shocks. Operational costs are rising due to crisis management. And in some lines, such as motor, for example, premiums are falling as people are driving a lot less in the lockdowns. You've got the travel industry and the related sectors will be hit hard, you know, airlines, marine, credit. And although premium volumes will be down in 2020, it is anticipated in the non-life sector that they will return to positive growth for 2021. So I think the industry's capital position should be able to handle the COVID-19 shock. The upper end scale of the loss seems to be similar to that of Hurricanes Harvey, Irma and Maria in 2017. But what the pandemic and what COVID has raised is the importance of private and public partnerships to develop pandemic cover. So I think in the non-life market, COVID will hopefully continue the rate hardening trend. It is also emphasize the importance in the industry to advance digital capabilities to reduce operational costs and enhance customer experience. And then if you think of things like the world of cyber, that's going to have a huge impact from COVID and the rising threat and increase in remote working due to COVID. Organizations are more vulnerable to attacks from cyber criminals. So, you know, demand is increasing and there is increased recognition of the impact of cybersecurity events, you know, driving more businesses to buy cybersecurity insurance. But even pre-COVID, prices were rising as losses increased due to ransomware attacks and other cyber breaches. So cyber insurers have certainly significantly improved their risk modeling to better understand cyber risk. But this will, of course, increase the demand of cyber reinsurance and things like silent cyber cover. So I think what this pandemic has done is just hit every line of business in every territory of the world. And the impact will be significant and long lasting, but it will make some significant and fundamental changes to the industry. Let's talk about the class of 2020. Obviously, we've had news stories, but we haven't seen necessarily hard cash sitting in bank accounts in Bermuda yet. What kind of opportunity are they stepping into? Is it a really broad opportunity or is it quite narrow and focused? Certainly, I talked to some people and they might describe it more as just a specialty and ENS opportunity rather than, for example, a broad reinsurance opportunity. Anyway, I'd love to have your thoughts on that, Vicky. You know, it's interesting. If, if you look back over the industry, you know, in the mid 80s, we had Ace and Excel formed. And then if you remember back to 1992, the class of 1992, post Andrew, you had the likes of REN, Partner, IPC. Then you move forward to 9-11 and the atrocities that occurred then and the class of 2001. And you had companies like Arch, Aspen, Montpellier, AWAC. They were all formed in Bermuda. And then, of course, post-Katrina, Wheaton and Wilmer, you had the class of 2005, Validus, Aerial, Flagstone, those sort of companies. But since 2005, there really hasn't been that development of those companies because the clashalized vehicles or the sidecars and ILS gave third-party capital a means to enter the market without the hassle of forming a new company. And, you know, as I've just mentioned already, the requirements to form a new company are getting tougher, either by means of the rating agencies or even at Lloyd's. But things are definitely warming up. 
And I think certainly if you look at global commercial insurance pricing, that continues to rise consistently. And Marsh recorded its ninth consecutive quarter of rises at the end of 2019. And then in the reinsurance world, the second quarter of this year saw significant increases in the June the 1st Florida renewal season and then the July US renewal season too. So generally, Q2 of this year saw most commercial lines increase, particularly specialty lines, based already on weakened underwriting margins. So probably with the exception of something like WCA, which still requires substantially more rate, the likelihood is that commercial lines, reinsurance and retro should still continue to improve. And particularly, it's still a lag from reserve developments and worsening liability trends. And it's probably anticipated that these will continue into 2021 as insurers really recognize the inadequacy of pricing in prior years. So I think whilst there is a huge anticipation around rate increases, I think, to be honest, Mark, the bigger question is, is the risk adequately rated even now? So risk adequacy will become a a big question going forward. So to summarize that, you'd say it is quite a broad opportunity, really, and worth getting out of bed for and jumping through all the extra hoops that you need to these days to actually do a genuine startup. I think there is, but I think you've got to carefully navigate through. I'm not sure it's just a free-for-all in every line. And again, I think it's going to take people with really good experience to manage their way through this. You know, a lot of people in the industry haven't experienced a hard market before. How you operate in hard markets is, you know, somewhat different to that of a soft market. So I think it comes back to the whole point of it's like anything, it's picking your partners and picking them carefully and wisely. You know this world extremely well and you're so close to capital in this industry, Vicky. What sort of time frame would that class of 2020, those seasoned operators have? How long do you think their investors and backers are going to give them to build a new franchise or build new businesses? Is it long or short term kind of money? I think, again, COVID is an earnings event. It's not a capital event. So some capital we have discussed will be restrained or trapped and this will tighten the market. So 2021 is shaping up to be the hardest market we've all seen for a long time. And this is drawing in new capital or existing capital that may want to deploy more into those new startups. And most, you know, we've talked about most are likely to focus on specialty wholesale and commercial insurance and reinsurance. And we've already touched on where PE is going to focus. So I think the next two years is going to look very, very exciting. There's no question about that. But no one can predict this industry. Two years is a long time. And I mean, who could have ever predicted what's emerged in 2020? Nobody, nobody could have done. So I think it's a very difficult question to answer. And, you know, there are other things to consider, like, will there be another major US wind event this season? And that could obviously have a huge impact on pricing. And will the pandemic have further significant spikes globally? which could also change things. You know, things are still so fluid around the whole COVID-19 situation. Interest rates, where will they be? Whilst they remain really low, our industry continues to provide great opportunities for investors because of the uncorrelated risk we've already mentioned. But, you know, we are in a world of, as my boss likes to say, VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity and ambiguity. And who can realistically judge that? Despite all the best technology in the world, black swan events could and do happen, as we've seen. We've had some capital raising, and that we've seen is from incumbents by rights issues and other things. 
What do you think that is generally going to be allocated towards? Do you think strategically, is it going to be more to make the balance sheet stronger so that those businesses can retain more and rely less on retro and reinsurance? Or is it going to be more for all out expansion? I think there are a number of reasons people raise capital. And I think there's a lot of talk publicly about people raising substantial amounts of capital to take advantage of, you know, these tremendous rate increases that they're all anticipating. I think actually a lot of the capital raising is all about boosting reserves. There's a huge amount of development coming through on the prior years. And if you look at what's going on with social inflation, if you look at US court rulings, we're in a more litigious world and we're seeing loss creep coming in on prior cap losses. And companies are really trying to optimize capital. So they're looking at their classes that require, you know, the most amounts of capital and saying, do we really need to keep these classes? Are they the best performers? And if not, why don't we take them off balance sheet? So we've seen a huge increase in retrospective covers, LPTs, ADCs, as we call it, capital housekeeping. So whilst there will be raises for new business opportunities, I think there's also a certain amount of capital raising going off to shore up balance sheets, strengthen them up because of the anticipation of further development, particularly around US casualty lines, where we all know what happens. They only tend to go one way. And I think sensible people are are looking very carefully at how well reserved they are and making sure that there is abundance in their reserves to take care of those sort of developments. So it's a, it's a pivotal time in the market. There's a lot of turmoil out there and there's a lot of moves going on. So I think it's fascinating to see how people react to it. So lots of capital levers being pulled for different reasons in different places. You mentioned earlier another capital lever that an industry CEO's disposal is ILS. You mentioned about trapped capital earlier on. How is yeah. the ILS world bearing up? Is it still a useful capital lever that's still available or is it slightly not necessarily as open for business as it was because of trapped capital and other things or has it traded through that now? So ILS as an asset class has really performed well during the COVID crisis, once again proving its low correlation features compared to traditional and other alternative asset classes. The asset class is now offering probably the most attractive risk-adjusted returns since meaningful allocations entered after the financial crisis. So if you look at the cap bond area, where there's circa 30 billion of capital, that remains really robust with a strong issuance so far in 2020. And there's a healthy pipeline for the second half of 2020. And we expect flows of new capital into cap bond strategies as investors favor the attractive liquidity and also the structural features that cap bond products offer. If you look at collateralized reinsurance, which is circa 42 billion, that has seen probably the greatest reduction in capacity, mainly due to redemptions amongst some of the funds and the lack of new capital coming into that. And the aggregate structures, particularly in the retro market, have seen the greatest capacity restraints. And probably that's somewhat as a result of shock losses creeping in that they weren't expecting, non-modelled cap perils such as wildfires is a classic example. And then, of course, we've got the pandemic. If you take the sidecom market, which is about just under 10 billion, that's really bifurcated. ILS funds are reducing their capacity. But in contrast, some of the larger institutional investor funds are growing their quota share participations 
but again in a very very selective way with small groups of global reinsurers and that comes back down to reputation and track record I think is really important and then there have been you know structural enhancements are required now to the rollover mechanisms to attract new capital allocations and then finally the other part of the ILS world is obviously the ILWs which is you know the smaller part at about five billion but that's definitely seen an increased activity in the last few months because buyers will seek additional cover ahead of the windstorm. And it's always been a really great way to protect against, you know, spike exposures if they're unable to secure other sort of retrocessional capacity. So I'd say, you know, generally, ILS has held up extremely well and continues to be attractive for many investors. And it sounds very healthy and just the cut and thrust of trading, things doing better than others and capital coming in and capital exiting, just like you would expect it to based on experience and how well things do. You're a real expert in Lloyd's trade capital. So what's the sort of environment going into that 2021 planning process? We've had a real kind of hollowing out of of trade capital. I'd just love to hear what the latest is from that front. I can assure you it's going to be really tough. The next few months are going to be very, very challenging with trade capital. Historically, I mean, trade capital has been a really important part to a number of people's capital stacks. And a lot of companies globally have found it a very, very great way to diversify their own portfolios. So if you go back even as far back to the early 90s, you know, a lot of the Japanese companies, the strong Japanese companies, saw it as a tremendous way to be able to grow and diversify their portfolios as they were unable to grow anymore in their local territories, particularly in Japan. And then since then, we've had other trade players coming in from all across the world. So whether it's from the Middle East, whether it's you know, additional supporters in the Far East, in Latin America, in Europe, in Scandinavia. And some of those are driven by the sovereign rating of their own countries, because obviously they can't carry a higher rating than that of the sovereign rating. And this has been a great way to access diversified business. I think the challenges have been that in the last few years, and you've seen this recently with John Neal's reports around the performance at Lloyd's, the overall Lloyd's loss ratio is over 100%, and that's just not acceptable. So there's a big drive in performance. And a number of these trade capital players have lost money for the last three or four years. And every year there's a story of we're going through a transformation. There's a lot of remediation's gone in, spin the dice again, and guess what? You know, it's going to be a better year. And to date, it hasn't been. So I think you're seeing a retraction in a number of trade trade foul players, partially because of the poor results. And I'm sure that their own boards are questioning why they're investing in these operations are losing money every year. Why aren't they maintaining it to right in their own territories that they know better? And there'll be a focus on that. So you can see that these carriers are going to cut back and are there new trade players coming in? And I think people will turn around this year. There's going to be a fight for capacity within a lot of companies about putting capital to use for the most profitable lines of business. And is trade foul play at Lloyd's the most efficient way of using their so-called aggregate? But at the same time, you know, there have been some extremely good performers at Lloyd's and top quartile year on year deliver fantastic results. So I think it's unfair to take the market as a whole and say it's a poor performer. There are always good and bad. And there are opportunities where companies have had very, very successful turnarounds. And let's not underestimate that Lloyd still offers a hugely unique capital platform whereby you can get tremendous diversification benefit. 
So the potential return on equity on those good performers is outstanding and remains some of the best potential returns you can get across the industry. So I think, again, it will come down to bifurcation of the market. The good performers will find it more easily to attract the capital, and the capital is certainly going to want to move towards those better performers. And I think some of the poorest performers will struggle, and it's going to be a very, very difficult process. And we've already heard from John that the whole performance management regime at Lloyd's is going to look to be pretty aggressive for those that are bringing down the market average. And that's not just the small syndicates, it's some of the largest syndicates that you know, are not delivering the results they should be. So there's going to be a real focus on performance results. And I think that's where the capital will be attracted to those better For those that do get their business plan approved, do you think the story is going to be good enough this time because you've got to point to really solid rate increases, perhaps compounding on rate increases from previous years? A very good question. I think, again, you know, I keep coming down to the fact that it's all about picking your partners. And I think there will be operations that offer very attractive opportunities going forward. And either that's because they've got an outstanding management team. They've really managed the cycle very well in the past, the down cycle. They've reserved adequately and they can really drive bottom end results. And there are others who probably won't. So I think the opportunities will be there. But again, it comes down to choice. Staying in London again, you were involved, you are involved in the Lloyd's Pandemic Working Group. What if you could run us through some of that and some of the solutions that you're proposing for pandemic? This is for ensuring future pandemics going forward. Run some of those concepts and and what you think would be the most likely to be taken up. The opportunity that I'm actually working on is uh, called Restart. So this is a project backed by Lloyds and certain market practitioners, both managing agents and brokers. And its aim is really to develop a rating model, aggregation model, policy form that could initially be used to help UK companies restart following future waves of COVID-19, but also to create a market to address future pandemics by pooling capacity from within the Lloyds market. So the target is most likely going to be UK SMEs and probably within that focusing more on the micro SME constituents because there's about 5 million SME companies in the UK and the micro SMEs are probably 2 million of that 5 million. And the levels of cover we'll give, and again, this is all up for discussion, there'll probably be several levels of cover that you can buy up to a maximum of, say, 100,000. It is likely to be a parametric trigger. And pricing has obviously, there's a challenge around pricing because there's got to be sufficient price to secure capacity. When I've already mentioned that managing agents have got internal fights over capacity this year. So there's got to be a price that's attractive enough for them to provide capacity. But also it's got to be economically viable that those SMEs will purchase it. So one of the big challenges is how do you model this? So Oliver Wyman have actually produced the Pandemic Navigator, and this is a navigator which forecasts the number of new and cumulative coronavirus cases across nearly 40 countries. So it really does provide insights how to manage after a peak and then the ability to study future containment scenarios. So it's quantitative It has a quantitative basis and it's currently being used by the government and a number of industry groups. And it can be used to see how well a COVID outbreak is being contained in a region. And it is correlated to 
Google's Community uh, Mobility Index. So the UK can now be split up into something like 150 different regions. And we hope that the navigator will provide adequate data to be able to price restart. So we have our first true technical kickoff meeting this week. And our aim is to try and get this product up and running for the 1st of January. But I think the significant difference of this mark to the other initiatives going on globally is there's no government backing with this. This is purely a sort of Lloyd's market play. And that differentiates itself from, say, recovery or black swanry, which are other initiatives going on across the world. And those both will have government backstops. Because it's a Lloyd's only solution, then you can be much more nimble. What sort of aggregate limit is it likely to be put out? Because obviously it does all go, presumably, if the trigger gets hit, does it all go at once or there are variable triggers? Yeah, I think we'll probably have to have triggers around local locks. So it'll probably be declaring as a pandemic. And also maybe there's a second trigger of from a local lockdown or local spike. But again, these are all things that are being challenged, questioned. We've got to look at the data. We've got to discuss with the managing agents and get everybody comfortable. So as we've seen with these other initiatives, this is an incredibly complex topic and um, there are challenges all around. But certainly I think the importance is the willingness is there from the market. People are very keen to engage in this and want to support this. And we hope that we'll be able to bring something to market relatively quickly, as you say, it should be a fast process because we're really only talking about the Lloyd's market as opposed to some of these other initiatives, which are obviously much more complex involving governments and, and other schemes. And in terms of bringing a meaningful aggregate to that micro SME community, what sort of number might it be? That's a tough question because at the moment we've got to canvas the market and that's the job of us as brokers who engage in this to canvas the market and get the support. And one of the things, you know, will will Lloyds give any alleviation of capacity that's provided to this in the business plan like they've done, you know, around innovation? So these are all question marks which are being discussed at the moment. And I suppose one last quick clarification on that is that I'm presuming that this excludes COVID-19 because it's already out there. Well, you know, what's interesting about it is it's about future spikes of COVID-19. So again, when when we brought in the Oliver Wyman guys, some of the things that they discussed was by the end of this year, they're going to have a huge amount of additional data because if there are further spikes, it's likely to happen as we go into the autumn and the classic sort of timing of flu. And by the end of the year, they should have substantially more data to be able to pinpoint this and provide more data for underwriters to price. So we would hope that by the 1st of January, we can be up and running and it will cover you know, future COVID spikes. Oh, fantastic. That sounds really, really useful. Uh, looking at our own returning to a new normal for ourselves operationally in London, Lloyd's is going to reopen the underwriting room at the beginning of September. What do you think is going to be different about that and what might be very familiar? You know, this industry is amazing and it's been built up on tremendous face-to-face interaction. And, you know, we all love that side of it. And I think we've all missed it. But, you know, what this pandemic has, has shown and demonstrated is if you'd gone to the industry a week before the lockdown before the pandemic was sort of apparent and said, right, next week, the whole industry has to revert to remote. There would have been an uproar. I mean, there would have been, everybody would have said, you know, this is absolutely impossible. It can't be done. And yet, guess what? This has proved that overnight, the industry could convert to remote working and has worked extremely efficiently. Have there been hiccups? Yes. But I think 
all the technology departments have done a fantastic job in, in ensuring that things run smoothly and everything's possible, you know, capital raises, acquisitions, placements, it's all worked. But I think what we have to do is we've got to look back and say, what has worked really well and what hasn't worked so well? And I think it would be a great shame to revert back to exactly how things were. I mean, it would be an absolute waste of everything we've all endured. So if you sort of roll forward to question marks is, will there still be the need to have an underwriting room with face-to-face contact? I think for a number of things, face-to-face contact is extremely important, particularly when you're dealing with complex risks or complex issues. It's so much more helpful to be face-to-face. And don't let's underestimate that with the years of experience we've had, we've been able to build up relationships, which have been really important through this based on trust. And I think the challenge we've got is for the next generation coming through, they're not going to have or they won't have the opportunity of those relationships being built up over many years. So how do they continue to build those sort of relationships, which are so important? So I think there'll always be a need for the face-to-face interaction. And I think what Lloyd's is trying to do is to sort of go to a hybrid. So part of it can be done face-to-face. And I haven't been into the room since, but I've seen pictures of the efforts they've gone to to create a safe space for the underwriters and brokers to continue to go into Lloyd's. So there's sort of partitioning up between all the underwriting boxes. It's a bit like when you go up to a cashier at a bank and you pop your little credit card through the hole. So you've got those structures being put in place. And then what John Neal's also announced is to have a partial virtual room where there will be sort of hubs within the room that you can go on to Zoom and you can interact virtually with other underwriters. So I think it's going to be a little bit trial, a trial session, but I see us moving much more to a more efficient, driven by technology industry, which is going to have huge implications down the line on cost and efficiencies and also customer experience. And at the end of the day, it's all about delivering what the customers need. So I hope it's going to be a very exciting transformation. I hope the way we work becomes very different. I think there should be a lot more flexibility around employees working. Will there be the requirements for these huge office spaces or will companies be able to reduce office space and give much more flexibility to their workforce? That will open up opportunities for employing different types of people in different locations and different skill sets. So this pandemic has put the whole industry through an incredible transformation. I think we're at a real pivotal stage. And I think it's probably one of the most exciting times there have been in the industry because there is tremendous opportunity out there and there's great hope for making this industry far more efficient and cost-effective. Interesting dilemma. A broker confided to me the other day that it's far too easy for an underwriter to say no over a Zoom or on Teams screen. It's far harder for them to say no when you're sitting in front of them. Is there an element of that, Vicky? I think that's absolutely right. (laughs) My experience is when they see you coming, they go, oh no, how are we going to get rid of her now? So yes, look, there is a degree of that. It's very easy when you get an email, if you don't want to read it, you just press the delete button and it disappears. But believe me, you can still hound people virtually. And believe me, we still have. So even through the challenging placement period that we've been through, there's still ways of getting to underwriters and begging them to help us. Yeah, I was just visualising trying to say no to you face-to-face, Vicky, and I was thinking that would be quite difficult. <laughs> How do you feel about doing it virtually, Mark? <laughs> I know no, where you It's live. just as difficult. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm going to change the subject completely now. Concurrent with all the COVID-19, we've had, well, first we had, before COVID-19, we had the Me Too 
movement. And then but recently, what's really exploded into everyone's consciousness has been the Black Lives Matter movement. And they've really shaken the way that insurance and reinsurance has been viewing itself and viewing its history and viewing the way that it should be conducting itself going forward. You're a strong female insurance leader with great experience. What do you think the next step should be that leaders should be taking in insurance to carry this forward? Look, this is a really important topic and it's something that every board is discussing and addressing and there needs to be action. been in a lot of chat. I heard a great saying the other day, which I love this saying, diversity is being invited to the dance, but inclusion is being asked to dance. And it's very true. Inclusion should not be an abstract ideal that ticks boxes and makes people feel good because they've done something about it. But it is a critical tool that enables businesses' competitiveness and growth. And it really shouldn't matter whether you have 30 years of experience or 30 minutes of experience. You should have the freedom to express yourself. And what is really important, it's not what you look like or where you're from. It should be about cognitive diversity or diversity of thought, idea, philosophy, and in solving business problems through a culture of collaboration. And it's about giving everybody a voice and it's about equality to all. And I hate the thought of hierarchy in diversity. There should be no hierarchy. It should be done on capability and purely on your capabilities. So to me, that's a really important point. And I think it's about being treated fairly and equally. And that's what diversity should be about. Vicky, you've been in the market for many decades and you were one of the first strong female leaders to emerge in the London market. What's your assessment of how far the market's come in that time that you've been in the market? I imagine it must be a very different place from when you first set foot on Lime Street. Oh, my goodness. I mean, you know, it's moved so far, but it's still got a long way to go. You know, when I first came in at the end of 79, beginning of 80, I remember my very first day I walked into Lloyd's and I think there was just a sea of probably 2000 grey suits in front of me. And it was a terrifying ordeal. It was terrifying. I had to find Mr. Smith on box 332. He had brown hair and it was five foot 10 inches tall. And I had a map of where to go in the room. And it was a daunting experience, especially when I had absolutely no idea what the endorsement I had was saying. So, look, things have moved on. And I think the most important thing now is to know that there's been no other time like it now. Everybody has an equal opportunity to do well. And I think it's up to them. And you can't get away from the fact that there needs to be hard work. But to me, again, it comes back down to if you work hard, And if companies genuinely adopt what they preach in terms of giving people equal opportunity, there should be no barriers to anyone. And what I say to a lot of people who I mentor, whether they're female, whether they're ethnically diverse, it doesn't matter. The opportunity is there for you to take. Um, You need to take it because this is a really exciting time in the industry. We need diverse talent. Um, It's so important in bringing fresh ideas to the industry. And that's going to be really important as we evolve digitally, because these younger people are digital natives. You know, they've grown up with technology. And what we don't want to do is drag them back to their era. We want to propel their thinking and get their ideas around new products. So it's an exciting time. And I just hope there's a lot of chat. I just hope people follow up with genuine actions. Well, Vicky, thanks so much for sharing that. 
I've come to the end of the list of my questions. So I'd really like to thank you for giving us your time and answering all those questions so eloquently. Thank you so much. And I hope you'll come back and speak to us again very soon. Mark, thanks very, very much for the opportunity. And I've really enjoyed it and very happy to come back anytime. Thanks so much, Vicky. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Thanks for listening. And once again, big thanks to today's supporter, Claims Direct Access. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.